Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com, where, among other things, we publish in-depth and totally honest reviews of outdoor sports equipment. These days, most people understand that when you're out skiing, biking, boating, or climbing, it's pretty stupid not to wear a helmet. More than ever before, we are gaining a better understanding of the variety and the devastating consequences of head injuries, ranging from what we used to call mild concussions to full-blown CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But while we can agree that helmets are a good idea, it is pretty alarming how little most of us know beyond that, and that lack of knowledge can prove to be dangerous. Are all helmets pretty much the same and equally safe? What's up with all those different safety certifications? What should a helmet fit like if it is actually going to protect your head in a crash? What are the main things you should be looking for, and what do you most need to know before selecting and purchasing a helmet? One thing's for sure, the time to figure all of this out is not right after you've had a bad accident. So in this episode, we talk to Stola Müller, the lead designer and co-founder of Sweet Protection. Back in January, we talked to Stola at SIA, and we came away so impressed from that conversation that he earned our Favorite Person We Talked To at SIA award. Stola has spent a lot of his time thinking about and designing helmets, and I am confident of three things if you listen to this podcast. You will come away much better informed about how to protect your head, You will almost certainly purchase helmets differently in the future, and you'll see why we were so impressed with Stola back at SIA. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by Nest Bedding. When you are outside and getting after it, you ought to be at your best. You spend a lot of time carefully selecting the best equipment, so wouldn't it be regrettable if you yourself are the weakest link out there? It's easy to forget this, But proper sleep is one of the most important elements of peak performance, and it's no coincidence that many top athletes are sleeping great on the comfortable beds from Nest Bedding. Get on Twitter and you'll find Aisha Curry reporting that the Currys are loving their Alexander Hybrid mattress from Nest. So if you'd like to perform better and feel better every single day, then go to nestbedding.com, the affordable alternative to overpriced mattress stores, to see which of their mattresses is the best option for you. And since we have a thing for honest reviews around here, check out the hundreds and hundreds of customer reviews from verified Nest Bedding buyers. You'll see that Nest Bedding has earned its reputation for quality and customer service. Now let's get to our conversation with Stola, Sweet Protection's founder and head designer. And you can check out the show notes for this episode on the website. Just click on Blister Podcast on the nav bar to see videos and some of the products that Stola and I discuss. I'm happy to be talking today with Stole Müller. Stole, how did I do on your name? Uh, you did pretty good. How would you pronounce your name if you Stol- weren't me? Uh, Stole Müller. That sounds much better than, than my version. Um, <laughs> and we just, Stole and I were talking, This your name uh, in English, translates to, uh, uh, I guess, Steel Miller. Steel Miller. I like that. Um, 
that's a good, that's a good, that is a fine name. Um, but uh, I like the way you pronounce your name better than the way I pronounce your name. To get started, maybe you could tell us a bit about your background. Um, how did you get into helmet design? Um, I, uh, like growing up here in uh, Trisil, in the middle of the wilderness in Norway, we were kind of, um, uh, it's a very remote place and we were kind of uh, doing our own thing. We didn't have much connection with the, with the rest of the world when I was a kid. And uh, we were, I guess we were kind of exploring alternative uh, sports. We were very, um, very influenced by, by uh, skateboarding and everything that came from America. And um, uh, we, we started kind of making our own stuff, basically, because uh, first... I, we got into skateboarding was the first thing, and uh, in in Norway, uh, skateboarding was banned. Hmm. Uh, so we had to make our own skateboards, uh, and then we kind of uh, made our own uh, skate ramps and uh, had to hide them in the forest. And um, yeah, basically, I had to make a lot of stuff in order to pursue the sports that we were passionate about. Wait, wait, wait! And Let, skateboarding was banned across the country. Yes, and is it still? No, they lifted the ban, ban in 1989. Huh. But the uh, thought at the time was that it was just too dangerous of a sport or too... What? What was the issue? It was considered uh, dangerous, I think, because they didn't have any brakes. And it was... Uh, I don't know really uh, mm -hmm. why they banned it. Hmm. But it was... You couldn't buy them and it was illegal to own and illegal to use. So it was difficult, uh, a difficult sport to fall in love in. <laughs> yeah. But we, we uh, but basically that's, that's kind of how we started here, making skateboards. Hmm. And then uh, the local river was basically the closest we can get to the Pacific surf. Uh -huh. uh, so we, we uh, started doing uh, whitewater kayaking. And then, of course, being in a... Living in a ski resort, we did a lot of skiing and snowboarding in the in the in the winter. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was there was kind of like a I don't know like a transformation or a small revolution in whitewater kayaking in the uh, in the early nineties. And uh, and we came from like more like an action sports background. Uh, and uh, the whole reason we started Sweet Protection was because we were kind of annoyed by, by the gear that was available, uh, which kind of inhibited the progression we were looking for. Hmm. So um, we, um, we started then making our own uh, kayaks with different hulls that would surf better and you could do more tricks. And I think the, one of the first kayaks we did in, was in '97 for the world championships in Canada. And a spin-off from that was the first helmet because the kind of uh the gear was had more like a East European aesthetics which didn't appeal much to us. Mm -hmm. And then we um we worked a lot with different composite materials and then said hey maybe we can uh, make a better helmet as well that would be more suitable for the kind of kayaking that we're doing. And then um and that basically became the first first helmet 
the the strutter which is still in production yep um and uh people seem to really like the design because it was it was a low profile uh with high tech materials and um you have the protection from from the sun and a very functional functional piece to a lot of people so when the strutter then the the original strutter what where are we timeline wise what year is this the first uh strutter i made in in our garage in 1997 okay so this means that the part you haven't talked about yet is not everybody just starts playing around with materials right i mean what what was your academic background like or did this i mean you were studying whatever you were studying and you just happened to be the kid trying to make a skateboard helmet initially and how how did you start getting involved with materials uh i would say from a very early age uh i've been uh, uh i've been uh very uh curious and always wanted to know how things are put together so i like my parents could never give me uh like a like a f- assembled toy they always had to give me <laughs> <laughs> give me uh uh lego so i could build the build my own stuff the the and i always threw away the manual because i had like i wanted to build my own things if they gave me like a remote control car it would be very uh i would say close remote after 10 minutes because I took it apart to see how it was made. And then uh, very very early I was um, always looking on how you can kind of improve the gear, like how you can, like Telemark was the rage back then, and how you can improve the boots and the bindings and how you could uh, be basically less annoyed when, we were, when you were doing what, what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we had the workshop and a sewing machine and... Uh, I could basically use whatever tools were in the house, and um, so I think uh, I think I didn't have much of a choice. I kind of ended up being a designer. <laughs> <laughs> so, how old were you when you were uh, playing around with sewing machines? And wh- I mean, I, are we talking from? It sounds like I guess from a from the time you were four or five or six year old, six years old, this all kind of got started. But when did you really start? What like how old were you when you started trying to design skateboard helmets? Uh, it wasn't skateboard helmets. It was the the actual oh, the skateboards. Boards. Yeah, uh, I made the the boards when I was fourteen. Okay, uh, and I was I was uh, uh, like we we had to kind of uh, we had to get the all the all the magazines and the the cultural input from uh, from uh, Sweden. Because there was legal, so I started like reading Thrasher magazine and got all the catalogs and everything. And I was really uh, like the whole sports and the artwork and everything really spoke to me. So I tried to to make them uh, myself. We didn't have uh, Canadian maple, but we had the Norwegian birch and hmm. made the tools in the press and tried to make them uh, as strong and as light as the ones that you could get from from America. Hmm. And then. Uh, I did a lot of uh, 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 touring and, and skiing and climbing as well. So I guess I made my my f- first Gore-Tex uh, ski jacket and pants. I think I made when I was 16. So then you're 16, making your own Gore-Tex jackets. And you're how old when the strutter comes out? 
That was in the 97, so I guess I was 22 or 23. Okay, wow. How old are you now? Now I'm uh, soon 42. Okay, all right. <laughs> How did you go from deciding you wanted to design some helmets to starting this company? Well, we, we were a group of friends who uh, grew up together uh, here in, uh, in Trisil, and we were all basically very passionate about the same things. And uh, we traveled uh, outside of Trisil to, you know, to kind of progress and see what, what the rest of the world looked like. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and on this adventure, we kind of saw how better, uh, better equipment could, uh, could kind of uh, progress the sport. And uh, so, so we were all, always kind of fiddling in our garage and, and trying to improve on gear or making new stuff. Um, and um, yeah, in 2000, we, we were kind of, people seemed to really like what we're doing. So uh, we figured to, to start a company to, mm -hmm. to make the best uh, uh, protection uh, equipment that we can do for yeah. the, the sports that we're passionate about. Yeah. It seems like Sweet started by designing whitewater helmets and then moved into snow sports, and then moved into bike helmets. Is that is that actually a fair representation, or was this stuff all happening behind the scenes at kind of a you know sort of overlapping times? Well, um, it it started it started out with the with the Strutter, the first whitewater yep. helmet, and then. And then uh, basically, I was I was kind of spending a lot of time in the mountains, and my mom called me and told me that now you need to get an education. <laughs> so, so I I studied uh, um, four and a half years of industrial design, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, and then got a degree, and then uh, worked a little bit, you know, making these these products on the side. And then when we decided to, to start the company in in two thousand. Uh, the, the strategy was that we were gonna, uh, we had the whitewater helmet and then we, then we started developing the ski helmet right away with, with the same philosophy and the same technology that we used, which was, uh, carbon fiber. Um, and, uh, then we spent, uh, some years then developing the technology and making more, more products. And uh, we launched our first mountain bike helmets in 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why we went into mountain biking is first, uh, it was, I think the most important thing when you're designing things is that you really know the inner nature of the, the activities you're designing for. Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're easily annoyed, to put it that way, uh, you always look for for solutions on products, and uh, we've been mountain biking for since we were kids, basically. Yeah. But then again, there was like a, uh, the the speeds on the trails were kind of picking up with the full suspension and the and the enduro, and the, and there was a lot of lot of um, things going on with bike development and we could bike trails that we never kind of biked before and then of course the the speed was picking up and we could uh we were thinking we can maybe make a difference in this segment as well 
which of these categories, whitewater, snow sports, biking, is one, designing helmets in one of those areas, is it fundamentally hardest in one of those three areas? I would say that every, every project that we start is we make it very difficult for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, like there's, there's, uh, uh, we have like certain things that we want to, like qualities we want to put into our helmets uh, and, and, and certain things that we believe is important, which means that every single project that we, we start uh, becomes difficult <laughs> hmm. because of the what we require from from the design. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that one is uh, one is more difficult than the other. But we we tend to make every single project difficult. But we have never started a project that we hadn't finished. Hmm. Cool. Um, we're gonna get back. We'll circle back and talk more specifics about um, sweet protection and certain sweet products, but. Let's go ahead and, and kind of speak a bit more generally about helmets and helmet usage and where we are um, in the world with, with this stuff. Um, I think that we've sort of hit a point where most people now understand that it is a good idea to wear a helmet when doing things like skiing and biking and kayaking. Um, but it seems to me that many people don't have a good sense of what the difference really is between one helmet and the next helmet. Um, so I'd like you, if you could, to walk me through the things that, in your opinion, are the most important factors for people to be looking for and considering in a helmet. Well, um, first, the, the most important thing is to to choose a helmet which is specifically designed for the sport that you're going to do um, because each helmet is designed differently um, whether you're going to like if you're going to go white water kayaking you need a, a, a white water specific helmet and a bike helmet and so on and so forth and then uh, the the next thing you need to look for is whether it's certified for that area of, uh, of sports and uh, the most important thing for a helmet is that it fits your head. Mm -hmm. um, you have to make sure that the helmet has the correct size. Uh, a lot of people wear uh, helmets that are a little bit too big. So you should try on different helmets to make sure that you get the one that you can fit comfortably as snug as possible. And then you have to make sure that you wear it correctly. Because if the helmet doesn't cover your head... Uh, it's not going to perform very well. Mm -hmm. So that means uh, choosing a helmet which has the right fit for you and make sure that it covers what it's supposed to, to cover and make sure that you wear it correctly. Okay. That so would be the most important thing. So before we get into advanced materials and different technologies and all the rest, um, somebody who is, say, in a $400 helmet versus some price point this $80 helmet, you're like, you would rather, you'd take the $80 helmet uh, over the $400 one if the $80 helmet fit you better and you were sort of wearing it correctly. Is that, is that the, like if you're not getting the fit right and wearing it correctly, we don't need to worry about advanced materials and the rest? Is that what you're saying? 
Uh, well, that that's the that's the the second step. There are a lot of different helmets with a mm -hmm. lot of different uh, technologies, and um, and but but the first and foremost is the this the safest helmet is the one you actually wear, yeah, and that you can wear throughout your activity basically, and, uh, and that you can comfortably wear. And if it's not certified, then uh, it's not really a helmet. And then secondly, you you should. Uh, you should try to pick a helmet which is uh, which has the best performance in terms of safety there is as a designer you are emphasizing you know people you've got to get the fit right and you're saying that the general issue you find is that many of us are going with a helmet that's too big and then it, and go ahead yeah either too big or not worn correctly like if if the helmet doesn't cover your head properly then uh that would, that would be like the fundamentals that you need to get right, mm -hmm. first and foremost. Say more about that. And if you are, let's say you're out skiing, um, and if you are seeing people on the mountain, um, fellow skiers, what are pe what's the primary mistake you're seeing with how people are wearing a helmet? Um, what, I, what I see on the mountain is that it's, it's basically two things. It's uh, either um, that... Uh, people expose their uh, foreheads, which means that the the helmet is not far enough down in the front. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't really have any gap between your goggles and your helmet mm -hmm. to make sure that you you, you cover uh, cover the head properly. And the the other thing I see is that uh, either the helmet is too big or you have too big of a beanie underneath your helmet. So mm -hmm. it's kind of tall on your head, which then, of course, reduces the, the coverage of the head. Yeah. And then uh, it's important to, to tighten the chin strap to make sure that the, the helmet doesn't move if you have a, have a tumble. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would, that would be the, the most important things when wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems pretty elemental, right? Yes. <laughs> which it's like tighten your helmet. Yes. Don't have Make a sure gaper you have gap. The right size. Yeah. Um, so that I mean, this is a big part of what I want to talk about with you, because, um, like I said, I, I started by saying I think many people understand these days that it's a very good idea to have a helmet on. Um, maybe the next bit we're taking is that, okay, great, you have a helmet on your head. Let's go the extra step and make sure that the thing actually fits you um, and is on securely. But now I want to talk about, you know, we can find, um, maybe we'll start as a generalization if, if this makes sense. In general, and then later I want to ask you about Sweet Protections line in particular, but in general, if I'm, I'm picking an arbitrary price point, um, let maybe $80 uh, for a helmet, what do you think what, what you are calling an appropriate appropriately fitting helmet do you think many let's say skiers in this case would view that as a really tight helmet or much tighter than they're used to most probably because it seems then you know the other issue is if a helmet is too tight you could conceivably like not be able to actually get your whole head into it right and now it, that would produce yes. a different problem in that you're 
that helmet isn't actually, you're not getting the coverage out of that helmet. It's sitting too high on your head, correct? Yes. What's important, uh, again, is, is how well the helmet is, is fitting you. That's, that's very important. So there, there, should be, there should be no voids or, or gaps mm-hmm. between your head and the helmet. And <clears throat> uh, in tests, we see that a properly fitted helmet would have better results as well. So we supply uh, some fit pads with our helmets so you can customize the fit. Uh, and but basically, a, a properly fitted helmet should be um, as tight as possible uh, to your head. You should still be able to chew uh, chewing gum, but but not more than that. Huh. And uh, you should make sure that you can get your your head all the way inside. And when you slightly rotate the helmet on your head, it should be uh, so tight that the skin on your forehead would move uh, would move with the helmet yep but uh, as well the um, when you you, sh- you should uh, you should you should check that fit and and also remember that the the comfort the thin comfort pads uh, that are in the in the um, inside the helmet will uh, you will be able to break in that a little bit not the actual shock absorbing foam, but um, but the the, the the comfort liner. Mm-hmm. But in so, general, if for safety, uh, get the most coverage and the tightest fit that you're comfortable with. Yep. And then that's almost like in terms of thinking of a ski boot, right? You want a tight ski boot to allow for a little bit of some of that liner packing out. Um, sounds like that's what you were just saying about that fit. Understand that of a tight, a tightly fitting helmet will develop. Um, it will pack out, I guess, a little bit over time. Yeah. Is that that's yeah. fair? Yeah, I would say like like with a boot, you shouldn't be able to lift your heel, right. but uh, maybe wiggle your uh, toe slightly. Yeah, which would be like chewing chewing gum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> chewing chewing <laughs> gum with your feet. That's how yes. I'm always. Now I'll always think of a ski boot fitting that way. What is a person generally going to be paying for if they opt for an $800 helmet versus a $200, $300, $400 helmet? You know, is it is it with the more expensive helmets, are we just getting some bells and whistles and additional features? Or are there significant upgrades in terms of protection? Uh, it really varies. Uh, you can have really expensive helmets, which are expensive because... There's a lot of bells and whistles and, and more luxurious materials. But then on the other hand, you would some of the expensive helmets would offer uh, a higher performance level. Um, and then there would be helmets that would provide more of, uh, of, uh, of ventilation and, and mm-hmm. comfort uh, features and, and, and gadgets. Uh, and then... Uh, so, so it really varies between the different brands what you're actually paying for. Mm-hmm. So there's no specific kind of uniformity across brands um, as we start going up in price point. Um, you're you're not. It's you can't simply say, well, if I'm dropping three hundred dollars on a helmet, I am from whatever company. I am bound to be getting a uh, a quote unquote safer helmet. 
you're, uh, we're not we're not there. Not necessarily, but you you can get a safer helmet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's say somebody is sitting there and they are you know either replacing a helmet or they're just starting to get into skiing or snowboarding or or mountain biking, and they are asking the question, um, you know what is, I want a safe helmet. I want a quote unquote safe helmet. Um, you've already talked about fit and how important that is, but what other things should they be placing the most emphasis on? Um, would that be materials? Would that be the features? Would that be the weight of the helmet? How would you, how would you talk about that? Well, um, in, in, in general for, for the, for the helmets that we have in our line, uh, the, the more you pay in general, the safer the helmet is. And what you have to look for, uh, if you're looking for a safer helmet, is first and foremost is the is the certification. Uh, the North American standard is uh, is ASTM 2040, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, the European norm is EN 1077 for for ski helmets. Uh, if your if your uh, helmet has both norms, then you know it's been tested according to two different norms, mm-hmm. which is always better. And then uh, there are uh, added uh, safety features like MIPS, which will uh, which is uh, which deals with the rotational forces that you can be subjected to when you're traveling at speed, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, which is uh, an added safety feature, whereas the, the regular norms, they deal with linear impacts at different speeds and different mm-hmm. tolerance levels as well. And then, uh, and then MIPS will deal with the rotational forces or reduce the rotational forces onto your brain itself. Mm-hmm. So if you have a helmet that will be, meet both norms and have MIPS in addition, then you, you have a, then you have a, uh, helmet that's been tested very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's talk about MIPS in particular. I mean, from what you've just said, it sounds. I mean, I know Sweet uh, offers a number of helmets with MIPS. Um, talk to you know what? Well, what is MIPS in the sense of this is a this is a particular technology. It's a particular company, right? That has implemented this technology and, and it made that technology available to a number of different helmet manufacturers. Is that a correct way to put that? Yes, it's been um, uh, been developed uh, in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's based on uh, a lot of research on, on what rotational forces does to the brain, uh, a lot of simulation, and, uh, and then uh, it's a licensed technology that, it, that it's offered in, in, in different uh, for different brands, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and what it does is when you when you travel at speed, uh, and uh, and you hit your head at speed, uh, which we call an oblique impact, what happens is that uh, the friction between the the ground, the helmet, and your head will cause your your head to rotate, which will uh, which will result in strain on the actual brain. So the, the brain will rotate inside your head. And what MIPS does is that it has a low friction layer inside the helmet, 
which means that the helmet will rotate relative to your head in the in the first uh, phase of the impact, which will reduce the rotational forces on your brain. So it's a, it's a, it's a, this yellow low friction layer has when we when we test the helmets, we test it from different angles and different uh, directions, and then we can see. Uh, how much it'll actually reduce the rotational forces, and then the the second phase of the impact would be the would be the linear forces, uh, where the 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 shell and the shock absorbing uh, structure in the helmet has to reduce the linear forces. Okay, and we will we will on the site on the show notes for this episode. Um, put some links up or videos up to MIPS uh, in case anybody isn't familiar with the technology and what it's supposed to be accomplishing. Um, and <clears throat> sticking with MIPS for a second, there are, it sounds like there are no um, specific certifications for MIPS because this is, this is just, I guess the related question is, we see a number of helmets, and let's say I go look at 10 different MIPS helmets from 10 different manufacturers. Can I assume that that MIPS system will be implemented in the same way in each of these helmets? Like, how do I think about that, right? Um, is, is MIPS like a, you know, I don't know, a radio that you install into your car? It, you just plunk it in, or it's still got to be implemented and kind of mesh with the the helmet itself, right? Well, yeah, there uh, it, it's it's implemented and and tested in the helmet. Um, and what we do, what we did when we started using MIPS uh, four years ago, is that we um, we um, tried to optimize the the geometry mm -hmm. and. Uh, and uh, because there's there's a lot of different factors that will uh, that's important uh, when designing a helmet. Um, one thing which we spend a lot of time developing is the the, the actual shell. Uh, that's 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 the first thing that kind of uh, hit, hits the ground. And uh, what we try to do when designing the helmets is that we we want to make a helmet that has a, a, a very uh, simple geometry which means that the the helmet is has a very round shape there are no protruding protruding uh, things on the helmet which means that it'll in uh, the shell itself would uh, would slide on the on the ground very easily there's nothing on the helmet shell that will catch it mm -hmm. and then uh, this the second layer is the shock absorbing uh, um, material the EPS which is where we we as well, uh, we have to make sure that it's uh, it's a good fit for most people, uh, but still uh, design it so that you can uh, have different sizes so you can find the correct fit. And then we make that geometry uh, inside as simple as possible as well. And then we have different densities, which corresponds to the, the different uh, areas of your, your head to, because the geometry of the head is very complicated. And then with the MIPS layer inside, we design everything to make sure that it has the, the best movement in, in all directions. And this is done then in, in cooperation with MIPS. Hmm. 
Okay. So it's it's very important when designing a helmet that it has to kind of work. Everything has to work together as a system. Yep. I want to ask you about um, another kind of. Um, I, I guess we would. It's an emerging technology, a current technology, but or 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 marketing term, I guess. Um, but we're seeing a bit of a rise in companies selling. Uh, what they're calling multi-impact helmets. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a very good reason uh, for a company to to try to make such a thing. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that even means? Um, and, well, let's start there. Talk to me about what that even means and why that would be an interesting, um, an interesting goal to pursue. Well, um... For the, the technology that we are using on our helmets, um, and uh, we have we have uh, tried as well a lot of multi-impact foams, but depending on the impact, uh, the the foams and the the shells are not indestructible, and and the shock-absorbing foam is still crushable. So uh, it really depends on what impact. Uh, mm-hmm. whether it's multi-impact or not. Um, so so basically, we try to use uh, the, the best foam to absorb uh, the impact. And uh, the, the best foam is like a, a shock absorber that does not spring back. It doesn't conserve any energy. And uh, But for white water, where you can have... Um, multiple low speed impacts when you're upside down the river we use uh, 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 what is described as a multi-impact foam but it's all down to the actual impact so mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult to uh, with our helmets to to give a multi-impact promise because there's no way to monitor the actual impact mm-hmm. so and to back up for just a second so the the um the idea or the intention of uh, a multi-impact helmet is the idea that in a standard helmet, these are designed, if there is a, upon impact, that helmet has been compromised, correct? The materials have been compromised. So the idea has been, well, if people don't like the idea of having to replace a helmet every time they have a crash or a bad crash, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there were materials that would allow, you know, allow for multiple impacts, right? That is the, that's kind of the idea and the, the intention behind a quote unquote multi-impact helmet, right? Am I, are we, are we okay on, on the sort of reason or the idea behind it? Yes. Uh, yeah. I guess, I guess it may, or it's, it's all down to the actual impact, but, but, uh, but it's, um, uh, it, it like everything is kind of destructible. It all depends yeah. on on what kind of impact and, right. and how to so, monitor it. And you're bring so that's the that's the second point that we're then getting to is so the idea of a multi impact that sounds really nice and that sounds great, right? I, agree. I don't want. I agree. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't want to replace my helmet every time I do something stupid. But what you're then saying is. Okay, so the idea is an interesting one and a compelling one, but actually 
delivering on the notion of a true multi-impact. What what I hear you saying is, but wait a second, we'd have to monitor the impacts, the nature of each impact to know if in fact things have been compromised or not. Am I am I tracking this correctly? Well, that that would be that would be our approach uh, because uh, what we advise is that everyone should replace their uh, their helmets after a severe impact uh, because I think it's um, as I said uh, it's it's difficult to 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 say like multi impact if you don't really know what the impact is mm-hmm. but but then again uh, the you could potentially make a a multi-impact helmet, but then it would uh, compromise the the weight and the volume, and there are a lot of different things. When you mentioned the notion of "quote unquote," uh, what did you say? Severe a severe impact, um, or when a helmet? I think you said you used the phrase when a helmet has been uh, severely impacted or severely compromised. Um, what am I able if I'm out on the mountain and I catch an edge um, and I, you know, hopefully not hit too hard, but let's say I hit a tree or glance off a tree. Can is this determination of whether I now need to replace my helmet? Is this something that I can do from a visual inspection? Will I will I see the damage to let me know that I need to replace this? Or how, how do I how does a typical person on the mountain evaluate? whether or not they now need to replace their helmet? Um, it, uh, it may or may not be visible, depending on what kind of shell technology you're using. Um, but you would, uh, by inspecting the, the EPS, uh, you can see whether mm-hmm. it has been uh, deformed. You can, see, um, uh, you can see signs of the outside as well. And if you're in doubt, mm-hmm. you, you should get the helmet inspected. Because uh, where would one get where would where would I get the helmet inspected? Uh, you could uh, you could go and uh, and see your uh, your dealer. Okay. Uh, but if if in doubt, uh, a helmet should always be uh, replaced. That's very very important. But uh, but if you if you have uh, if you have a, a crash, you, in in general, I would advise you to replace your helmet. So just looking around the EPS foam and trying to get a visual cue of damage, you you are advising as a helmet designer that you wouldn't necessarily trust that eye eye assessment. Well, uh, I I think first and foremost, if if uh, you, you kind of know if you've had like a uh, like a a real crash, and then if you see any damage on the shell or inside the EPS, then you should definitely replace your helmet. But you, you can uh, it's not always visible, but but uh, most of the time you can you can see if it has been damaged in any way. Mm-hmm. Helmets seem to necessarily present a series of i would think pretty serious compromises right so you need to design a helmet that is safe and offers good protection you Mm -hmm. also need to find something that is especially maybe in the case of a mountain bike helmet but even in some snow sports helmets you want good ventilation you have to get a good fit um, you are probably looking to keep the weight down. And then lastly, you might be looking to keep 
price down too. Um, and some of those things seem to it would seem to me be in direct uh, competition with e- with each other, right? Um, I can imagine making a very protective helmet that weighs a ton. Um, and it strikes me that it's probably more difficult to make a very protective helmet that weighs not much, for example. How do you as a designer look at the, the you know, ventilation, weight, protection, fit, price? W- would those be the sort of five primary elements you're looking at? Or, or what other compromises are there and how are you negotiating these compromises? Uh, well, uh, very good question. Uh, it's let's say if you, if you only let's say if you only focus on safety, yeah, uh, you would make the helmet as big as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bigger, uh, the bigger, the better. Uh, but then, uh, if you have a big lump on your head, it might be very difficult to to pursue the activities that you're trying to do. <laughs> or, and, to, and, or to stand up. <laughs> or, or to stand up. Uh, and the ventilation would be kind of a problem as well. So basically, uh, when we design a helmet, um, we try to, to create the... the there, are, there are three very important factors when designing a helmet. One is volume. Uh, you want to keep the volume as low as possible because then it's very comfortable to wear and uh, it doesn't inhibit you in any way. And then it's weight. You want to keep the weight down. And then you want to have the most performance out of the helmet when it matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why designing helmets becomes is, is very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have activities where... Uh, Ventilation is very important, and then you have other activities where it's not that important, mm-hmm. which means that you really have to design a helmet very specifically for the sports, uh, for for the different sports. So let's say for a, for a ski helmet, um, when designing designing a helmet, uh, there are there are different kind of uh, demands for a, for a ski helmet. If you if you make a um, a kid's helmet, there would be uh, different demands than for a World Cup ski racer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and of course, uh, price comes into it as well. Um, but each each and every project is very interesting, and it's as difficult to design a good kid's helmet as it is to design a uh, um, a helmet for for the World Cup. Uh, and um, it's let's say if you have we have a lot of very advanced helmets with very advanced shell technology and that shell technology allows us to to keep the volume down and get the most out of the the volume that we have decided we're going to use basically mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you use more conventional uh, uh, technology like in mold uh, you still want to get the most out of that technology and and try to make the best possible helmet um, but then you might compromise a little bit on, on let's say, ventilation. Mm-hmm. So you have to, and then if you want to have like the best, the best possible um, ventilation, uh, performance, volume, and um, uh, and fit, you end up using more expensive materials to kind of um, get the most out of uh, 
out of each and every, or compromise less, to put it that way. Yep. Um, but the best, the best uh, helmet for for the different uh, activities is in that triangle of uh, volume, weight, and performance. Yeah. Well, and by performance, you mean <clears throat> protection. Is that? Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, what is the trickiest compromise that you make? Again, if we're, if we're starting from, if I'm starting from the um, the bias or from the perspective of, I want to try to make the safest helmet I can. I would like, as somebody who doesn't design helmets, I would think that the ventilation thing would be a real pain in the ass, right? Like if all of us didn't have to worry so damn much about, you know, uh, getting too hot. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, is that, but how is it? I mean, do you think that if I talk to 10 different helmet designers, do you think that there would be a consensus that ventilation would be the thing that would seem to be at odds with that production of the quote unquote safer or safest helmet? Well, not, uh, it's it's kind of hard to speak on behalf of other helmet designers, but the the what's for let's say for a ski helmet, what's yeah. what's challenging there is to is to create it's a combination of low volume uh, and uh, and uh, sufficient ventilation, and then still worrying about the penetration. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course when you make compromises it's always kind of safety first uh, and then uh, it becomes challenging when you want to optimize both the, the performance of the helmet and the and the ventilation mm -hmm. uh, but I would say uh, all aspects of, of helmet design is is very uh, it's very <laughs> challenging no parts and, are easy and let's say for a, for a bike helmet, uh, it becomes even more challenging because the, then the demand of ventilation is even greater because yeah. it's at a very high temperature. Yeah. And then what we do there is that we want to make sure how can we, when we design a bike helmet, we know that there are areas on your head which is more vulnerable to impacts than others. There are like really, uh, really areas of the head that you really need to, to protect well. Mm -hmm. And from our technology on, on white water helmets through... Uh, ski helmets. It's all, all our designs are based around the geometry of the head, but as well, uh, what what kind of uh, areas are uh, difficult to manage? How can we kind of in <laughs> reinforce uh, uh, our somewhat not really op uh, optimized design of our heads? So, so knowing where where the weak points in in our heads are. And trying to work around those areas, for instance, like the side of our heads is 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 a is a challenge because that's where you have um, uh, arteries and veins going into your head. You, that's where you have uh, uh, the most muscles, and as well, you have uh, the weakest uh, geometry because there's not very much curvature, and you have the thinnest bone. So everything in one place. Yeah. So, so basically, what we try to do with our shell technologies that we want to optimize the geometry in that area and then we want to reinforce it and then for a for let's say a bike helmet you really don't want to expose that but that's where you generate heat as well so you want to you want to manage the airflow through that area without exposing it and then you need to you need to simulate and test uh, because you need to have a uh, good ventilation at 
uh, high speed, but then when you're not traveling at at that high speed, you you need to have ventilation on the crown where heat rises as well, and that's the same thing for ski helmets. How then? How do you how do you kind of make the vents in order to secure that area, both in in terms of um, penetration, but as well impact. And then uh, you end up using a lot of different materials and technology in order to not uh, create too much of a volume and still keep the the impact performance of the helmet. Yeah. So it's yeah it's uh, it is very very challenging. But you if you only worry about safety, then it's quite easy. You just make it big enough. What would you as a designer, <clears throat> let's say your material costs on one of your higher end helmets Mm -hmm. would you rather if we said all right you get to double your material costs you get to you know so this will be a very expensive helmet would you rather be able to double your material costs or make the helmet say 300 grams heavier do you know what i mean or do you feel like materials-wise, you are all that you're not you're not dreaming of these other materials that are simply too cost prohibitive right now to actually bring to market? That's, I guess, the question. Would you rather get that weight or a, a bigger, you know, a bigger price point to play with when it, when viewing materials? No, that, that it's that's very interesting because um, it's I, I would never it, it's that combination of things that's that's. Um, that makes a, a good product, the, yeah. uh, and let's say if uh, if you work with um, with plastic, uh, which which is the lightest material actually, uh, um, like the, the the polymer that we're using in our helmets has a density of one gram per uh, per uh, uh, cubic centimeter, and then uh, uh, carbon fiber would be mm-hmm. one time. 1.6 times um, denser than, than the polymer we're, we're using. So which means that if you're going to use some more advanced material, use it for the sake of protection, uh, yeah. but you're actually gaining weight, but you don't have to add volume because you, you have a better performing shell on the helmet. Yeah. Um, and then if you really use carbon fiber like we do on a lot of our helmets, we yeah. use it for protection, not for, for looks. Yeah, uh, and because of that extra, that you do, you do use carbon to increase the performance, but you will actually, if you use carbon the proper way, you're gonna you're gonna actually gain a little bit weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I want I want you to say more about this because I, mm-hmm. to be honest, I used to you know we we get asked to review a lot of product and and we're looking at these things and you know I admit as I'm seeing we've sort of seen the like carbonization of everything right so in mountain bikes and skis and everything's got to be carbon and so i used to look at these carbon helmets and just think that's for people that have too much money on their hands and you you know you want some carbon bling on your head and but talk to me about and so this was actually a conversation you and i had at sia about it, it really kind of flipped flipped things for me about um no carbon doesn't have to be just some blingy addition there are specific safety benefits in the um utilization of carbon can you say more about that um, yeah um 
Yes. Um, like, like first and foremost, the lightest helmet that the ski helmet that we make, uh, it has a polycarbonate shell. Uh, where polycarbonate is a polymer material which has uh, the density of one. Carbon has a density of 1.6, so it's it's more mass. It's it's heavier, let's say, than than polymer. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually you can comp- compare carbon to steel. Uh, so steel is around 7.8, which means five times more dense than carbon. But carbon is up to 10 times stronger if you make it correctly. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we use carbon fiber on, in our helmet shells is that it allows us to optimize um, the, the performance of the shell without adding volume. So basically what we do when we create the, um, the carbon shells is that we, we start with the, the basis for every design project, which, which is the, the human head. And when analyzing the human head, um, it's not round like a sphere, but it's a very complicated uh, geometry which have, um, in general, you have a very uh, small forehead, you have flat sides and a flat crown, and then you have a somewhat complex rear of the head. And then what, what carbon fiber allows us to do is that we can, we can make the shell more rigid uh, in, in areas where there's uh, a sharp radius or, or a small area where we need to absorb... Uh, the impact, and then we can make it more elastic where there's a larger area where, where you absorb the impact, all related to the actual shape of the head. And it's uh, it's kind of like if you, if you look at a tree, uh, it's it's a very nice uh, composite design. Uh, it's very uh, very uh, wide at the root because that's where it carries the most momentum, and then it kind of tapers off, and all the fibers are linear throughout the whole tree. So it's basically optimized for the forces that the tree are subjected to. And then uh, what we can do with fibers, with continuous um, carbon fibers, is that we can uh, decide which directions they're going to go and how they're going to overlap in order to create that um, optimum combination of rigidity and elasticity compared to uh, in relation to the geometry of the head. And uh, with with different uh, manufacturing methods, we can make a very compact um, layer, which we can easily duplicate um, this uh, these kind of uh, properties that we're looking for throughout the uh, uh, production. Hmm. But it's but the thing is that um, carbon is then. Um, more complicated in terms of manufacturing because all the carbon is basically handmade. Mm-hmm. So you have all these different sheets of carbon fibers, different different types of fibers, mm-hmm. which then has to be put accurately on to inside the mold, and then you cure it at 170 degrees at eight bars of pressure, and then you get a very compact and extremely um, optimized helmet shell, mm. and that's. That's why the, the carbon is not there for, for decoration, but it's really to be able to control the properties of the shell. Yeah. And that's basically how you would make, um, uh, uh, let's say, a high-end bike frame as well. You would add material where you have carry more momentum and 
and then where there's not that much momentum, you can make it Subtract. lighter. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's a very expensive process, and it takes a lot of time to to make each helmet shell. And then we use uh, the carbon fiber. Uh, we use that in in uh, combination with thermoplastics because thermoplastic would have really good elasticity. And then we can combine it with uh, with carbon fiber where we want that extreme rigidity. Yeah. And we do that on our bike helmets as well. Uh-huh. But what we discovered throughout uh, our yeah, now 20 years yeah. of uh, designing helmets is how much we performance we can actually get out of the shell. And then uh, when you uh, and then the next layer would be the the EPS form or the the impact absorption material. We can again optimize by making different densities in different areas so that it works really well with the pro- uh, properties of the shell. So you're you're trying to when you're developing a helmet, you're you're kind of fine tuning uh, all the different areas of the helmet to get basically the same performance because it's it's uh it's kind of difficult to plan where you're gonna hit when you have a tumble mm-hmm. hmm. <laughs> um kind of sticking with this um and and so you're are you saying that that carbon carbon is appearing in many or most of sweets helmets uh we have um in our uh, in our ski uh, line of ski and snowboard helmets, yeah, we have uh, helmets that are a combination uh, of carbon fiber lamin- laminated to thermoplastic mm-hmm. to get the elasticity, and then in our high end helmets for both a free ride and race, we have four different models. We use carbon fiber in those helmets as well. So we have. Um, and then again, in we use carbon as a critical component in white water and uh, uh, and mountain bike as well. Yeah. So we have a lot of helmets with different uh, different uh, carbon fiber technology. Yeah. What is on the the ski side on the say free ride ski side that helmet the best example of this is what's the model? Um, we have. We have two. We have two models, which is all carbon fiber. One is the Grimnir, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a ventilated carbon fiber helmet, um, and then we have the Rooster, yep. which was basically our very first helmet that came on the market in two thousand and two, because our very first helmets were all carbon fiber, and we were kind of working with this technology for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. and the Rooster has been continually uh, evolved throughout the years and and now the the, the rooster free ride helmet uh, uses a lot of the technology that we are using for our race helmets okay so it's basically uh, the the same technology as we use in the race shell and the same uh, impact uh, technology that we use there okay and those is it fair to say I mean we've already said that Every different helmet has its own challenges uh, in designs, but would it be fair to call the Grimner and the Rooster the kind of if 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 someone wanted to know what are the kind of pinnacle products that Sweet is making, at least on the ski side, would would you uh, would you? 
be okay with that saying, look at the Grimner, look at the rooster or yes. is that too? Okay. Okay. Um, and then on the whitewater side, what, what would you point to as, um, the kind of pinnacle achievements there? That would be the, the rocker. Mm -hmm. That's where we pioneered the, what we called our TLC technology, which is thermoplastic laminated carbon fiber. Mm -hmm. which is uh which is uh the rocker has a helmet shell which is made out of uh four parts mm -hmm. uh you have a lower frame which is uh which is uh quite thick thermoplastic which basically reinforces the sides of your your head and then there's um there's uh a thinner more elastic uh top shell which has carbon fiber reinforcements inside and those uh, carbon fiber reinforcements they cover the 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 sharper corners of your head the the transition of the forehead as well as the tr transition from the side to your crown and that same technology is used on our trooper ski helmet as well mm -hmm. so it's on those helmets you can it's very visible where you have the the elasticity and the rigidity and and uh and where the kind of the technology on how the, the shells are made is put on display. Yep. And then talk to me finally about on the, the bike side of things. Um, what model would you want to hold up on, on that side? Uh, that would be the Bushwhacker carbon MIPS. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, that was, um, that was a, quite a challenging project. <laughs> because, uh... <laughs> I, I figured you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. The thing is that, um, uh, Basically, the challenge with um, with the the bushwhacker was uh, implement that idea of how to work on the shell with with uh, with creating that kind of uh, relationship between rigidity and elasticity in in mold technology. Mm -hmm. So so the the bushwhacker was our first in mold helmet, and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we can still make the sh uh, to get performance out of an in-mold shell. So what we did there on the Bushwhacker Carbon MIPS is that we have uh, we have a pretty uh, even, uh, rounded um, base geometry, uh, which, is, which is kind of like our base philosophy. But then there's a lot of uh, chamfers uh, that reinforces the, the, the helmet in, in critical areas. And then as well, what we do is that we have um, a thinner polycarbonate shell where we want to have it more elastic, the flatter area of the head. And then we have a, in, in the rear, we have a thicker in-molded uh, polycarbonate shell. And then the most critical areas, which would be like from the corner of your forehead uh, through the transition from the, the side and the, and the crown of your head, we have pre-make uh, carbon fiber shells and all our carbon fiber is, is pre-preg so that we that it has the same weight and performance um, and very easy to duplicate even though it's it's a quite advanced process and then those shells are in molded as a part of the and integrated in as part of the shell it's not uh, a internal reinforcement but it's a, it's a critical part of the shell and then as well we have worked with the ventilation to try to uh, to make sure that you have the most uh, that you don't expose the most vulnerable areas of your head. Mm 
what's next? I mean, are there are there other categories um, that you guys are interested in potentially moving into? I think um, maybe not for the time being, but there's a lot of of development going on in the in the areas that we are that we already are into, um, and uh, it's kind of like as soon as you kind of finish the project, you really look for how can we improve this? <laughs> yeah. How can we improve improve things? And now, one thing is, one side of it is the actual technology development. Yeah. The the, the, the more you, the more you learn, the more you wanna, uh, the, the more you wanna uh, improve. Yeah. Uh, and I would like we're we're kind of, I would say we're kind of geeks. We we like materials. Different technologies and uh, and try to do what's not really possible is is a very important part of what we're doing, uh, and uh, and we yeah we we have a lot of lot of things in the pipeline for um, for uh, for all areas that we're into basically. Okay, but you are not. Here's an area I don't know a single thing about. Um, motorcycle helmets, for example. I mean, couldn't sweet? Do you look at that? Well, one, do you are you paying attention? What's going on in the the motorcycle motorcycle helmet category? Um, and if so, I mean, I have to kind of think that wouldn't you look at that industry and think, yeah, we see how people are doing things there. There's certainly some things that if we were to go into that space. We would. Um, this is how Sweet would do things in that area. Well, uh, I think in in general, uh, um, motorsport is is I would say extremely interesting because that's where you have the biggest budgets and the most technology and the longest history in in working with safety, basically. Yeah. Uh, so, so as a designer you would not only look to you know what's going on in your your own sports but you would always see what's 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 going on in the highest level mm-hmm. and uh we have a lot of um uh there there's a lot to uh to learn from what's going on in that area and a lot of the a lot of the processes that we do on our most advanced helmets is is basically from from uh from motor racing mm-hmm. either cars or or protection and um well i guess um it, it it like you you always look like maybe we can do this better maybe we can do this our way and and you always i think it's 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 important as a designer to look elsewhere than exactly where you're at to to learn new th- things and and uh and then it's kind of hard not to see that hmm, maybe we could improve that this or that but I think in in general, uh, uh, motorsports is is um, is uh, is extremely interesting. Not not only in terms of technology, but but the history yeah. they have with safety. Yeah. And in order to be to get the inspiration every day, you need to look uh, not only straight ahead, but you need to look at the sides. Yep. So there's yeah. a lot of from race car engineering, which is magazine <laughs> that yeah. that that I read to. To Professor Sid Watkins, who was responsible for safety in 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 Formula One. Hmm. So there's uh, there's always things to learn. Sid Watkins, would you? I this was another question I had for you, but 
Are there one or two kind of seminal figures in the history of um, helmet design and helmet safety, helmet standards? You know, is there kind of the the Thomas Edison or something of 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 this field where <clears throat> everyone in this space is looking and saying like this was the pioneer and we're all you know standing on the shoulders of this person? Um, is there such a figure? Well, uh, I think. Sid Watkins was a neurologist. I just enjoyed reading his books on on how he improved safety. But there's a there's an Australian uh, neurosurgeon. Uh, his name was Hugh uh, Hugh Cairns, and he um, uh, he uh, had like when Lawrence of Arabia had his motor uh, cycle accident in 1935. Mm-hmm. Uh, he attended to that accident. And then later become, uh, became advisor uh, on head injuries for uh, the Ministry of Health. Uh, and what, what he did, uh, he saw, he, I, from what I read, he saw that this, this accident could maybe be avoided with head protection. And then he persuaded the army to make a crash helmets uh, for dispatch riders compulsory when they were riding motorcycles. So he was, he was maybe the, and this was like late 30s, early 40s, I guess. So he was maybe the first one to see the connection. Hmm. Uh, but in terms of helmet development, I, um, I must admit we, we haven't, uh, I don't know if there's one, one single one who has contributed, but it, I guess helmet development has been a, a gradual evolution, and yeah. it, it's still evolving. There's still so much to learn, and there's still so little we know about, um, about the, the human brain yeah. and, and how to protect it. So it's, it's, uh, I don't know who, who made the, the first helmet, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of like evolution of cars. Uh, yeah. uh, Benz made the, the first car, and every single car still has one wheel in each corner. But they're they're just better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask that question about sort of where we are in the history of um, helmet technologies and and helmet safeties. Um, I. I saw uh, a statement from, um, if I pronounce his name correctly, Peter Halden, uh, who is the co-founder of MIPS. um, And he had this pretty provocative statement. He said, I think we'll see a huge step forward within the next five years. And he's talking about helmet technologies and advancements. Um, And so I was curious about that from a designer point of view, whether... I think it's understood everybody working in the area of neuroscience uh, says things like we are just at the forefront of learning and understanding the brain Mm. and and how it works. Um, Does it feel the same? I mean, that statement from Peter Halden, I think, sounds analogous to what neuroscientists and neurologists would be saying. Um, where where are we headed? What are you know? What advancements will we see in the next five years? Um, what kind of forecasting can you do on that front? Uh, I think it's a very 
I think it's a, a difficult question. Uh, I, me as a, I'm not a physician. Uh, I'm a helmet designer. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, the way I see it, the, the more uh, you learn about the brain, brain and the injuries, uh, and uh, the more you can develop uh, test methods to to simulate better uh, how to prevent prevent those injuries. Mm -hmm. So, so what's important is like what MIPS has been doing. They they've been working on the rotational uh, forces, which is which is um, um, I mean that that's like an uh, additional element to how to to manage uh, energy, and then. What helmet designers does is how to most efficiently deal with all kind of all kinds of forces that um, um, the head is subjected to uh, in the different activities, and what what improvement in in science can can provide helmet designers is the more you learn um, about the injuries. Um, what we're hoping for, the more you can simulate and try to understand how these uh, things occur. And uh, when you understand the problem, then there's there will be um, um, better solutions how to, to manage them. And advances are being made in terms of how to more efficiently absorb impacts, both rotational and linear impacts. So, from a design point of view, when you do your tests and simulations, you you, you discover better ways of doing things, and you you discover uh, better materials and and um, and things that can increase the performance of the product. And then discoveries in in science um, can then lead to 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 better ways of of simulating things uh, to have more precise way of of testing the helmets. Hmm. But uh, it's it's the more you uh, the more you read about these things, um, the I, I think what I read from science is that no one really fully understands uh, what goes on, yeah. um, and it's it's very very difficult to understand brain injuries still, and very difficult to diagnose them. So it's um, I don't know if 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 you're ever able to fully understand uh, what goes on. Mm -hmm. But improvements are always being made. Yep. Yeah. So if understanding the brain can lead to, to better helmets, then that's, uh, that's a very good thing. Yep. I want to shift. We've been saying uh, we want to talk about helmet standards and certifications um, it seems to me this is a big topic and a pretty poorly understood one. You, you've already noted that there are differing standards, different standards, um, you know, in North America versus Europe. Mm -hmm. um, as a consumer, um, again, just as somebody's out and it's like, man, I'd like to go skiing and I'd like to buy some helmet that's actually going to be pretty decent. Um, if 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 that's the person asking that question, is there a specific certification that you view as the gold standard, or are there one or two of those certifications that, let's say your you know your nephew was about to get into skiing and and saying you know I'd like to get a safe helmet and and 
spend money on something that's going to be worthwhile. What's your best advice there in terms of current standards? Well, we work with, uh, for, for let's say for ski helmets, we work with three different standards. For most of the helmets, are, are, um, they will meet um, both uh, EM 1077, the European norm, and ASTM 2040. Uh, what I think is is a good thing when uh, when buying a helmet is to to look for a helmet that will meet both standards because then that will mean that they are tested uh, at different impact speeds and uh, they are tested against different impact anvils and then you would have one uh, you would have in the North American norm you would have uh, uh, higher impact speeds in in general hmm. uh, and but you would uh, allow slightly higher uh, g forces as well in the European wait, wait. norm. Wait, say that say that again. The the uh, uh, it sounded like you were saying the advantage of the north the North American standard by which you mean uh, ASTM twenty forty. Yep. So the advantage is they're working with at higher speeds, which you would yes. consider a good thing. But yes, uh, they it's there's uh, slightly higher uh, g forces uh, as well. The the limit for the g forces, whereas the European norm, you test at a lower lower speed. Mm -hmm. You have a penetration test in addition, yep. uh, and um, and you have uh, lower g forces. Um, limit mm -hmm. and when designing a helmet uh, if you if you go for design for both norms then you have uh, basically a, a, a wider range of tests that you've gone through you have some tests in the in the North American norm that you won't have in the European norm and vice versa mm -hmm. and then you have the 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 FIS test for the ski racing helmets, where you have the the highest impact speed uh, of any uh, ski norm, and and uh, but a very low uh, the the same um, G-force threshold as the European. Yep. So let's say a ski racing helmet would meet the the European, the North American, and uh, a separate. Uh, FIS racing norm. Yep. And how many in in suites lineup of helmets? Where do any of your helmets meet all three of those certifications? Uh, our ski racing racing helmets meets all three. All three. Mm. And so, which helmets are those? In your that line? would be the the Rooster Duchessa RS. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yeah. And then let's say the Grimner, what what standards is where is the Grimner living on the certification front? Uh, all uh, all the um, the ski and snowboard helmets will meet both EN 1077 and ASTM 2040. Okay. Okay. And then in terms of the bike helmets, again we're looking at the same the same set of certifications. Um, for bike, or are we into different territory there? Uh, there's different uh, different requirements, so there are dif different uh, different certifications. So the bushwhacker would meet um, 
the EN 1078, mm -hmm. which is the European bike norm, and then CPSC, which is the North American bike standard. And there again, you would have different impact speeds and different uh, anvils that you would impact the helmet towards. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's it's generally uh, good to to meet basic basically both both norms. Okay. And then, of course, what we try to do is is um, the, to exceed those norms. Mm -hmm. Uh, try to get as much performance as possible and as big margin as possible to to the actual norm. As a designer, are you are you pretty impressed with the current certifications and standards? Or you know, when designers you know get around and have a pint, are is everyone grumbling or rolling their eyes at these standards and thinking like we need to do better as an industry? Um, or you know what I mean? How 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 happy or dissatisfied are you with with the current standards and approaches to testing? No, I think I think the um, I think that the current standards are 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 good, and I think it's. Um, but I think as well to to with the increased uh, technology to add in rotation when you learn more about. How injuries occur to to add more than what's required is seems to be a, a trend as well, and then that I think is a is a very positive development, mm -hmm. and that consumers are looking for more than more than uh, the norm, but as well uh, additional features like like MIPS. Okay. Yeah. Which deals with which deals with the with the forces that is uh, not uh, covered by the by the norms if if someone is you know getting into a sport or has a, a kid getting into a sport and they don't have a big budget uh, for a helmet what is the compelling argument you can make for why someone might consider one of sweet protections less expensive helmets versus one of those price point helmets from another company. Well, what we what we uh try to do with our uh helmets and that's that's basically a, the this it's the same philosophy that goes throughout uh all the helmets that we design. And um uh basically what we try to do, let's say with the kids helmet. Mhm. Mm is that we want to get as much coverage as possible, mm -hmm. which means that uh, our our kids kids' helmet is is um, it's quite deep, so that it covers um, uh, a large portion of the head. The other thing is that we try to create it as comfortable as possible, so we have a, a thick lining and uh, very comfortable box constructed air pads which it makes it possible to wear the helmet without necessarily having a beanie, which will kind of lift the helmet off from your head, uh, which then affects coverage. And then uh, it's extremely light, because when you're a kid, you, you, don't, have the, you don't have the same mass as an adult. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's basically more comfortable, which means that you're going to wear the helmet all the time. Um, 
and uh, it it meets uh, both uh, norms, uh, and it has a very clean and uh, simple geometry. Mm-hmm. And then the the last thing is that you have a very good uh, goggle fit. Hmm. But with that deep coverage, you can close the gap between your go- goggles and your helmet. Hmm. And then uh, the design is is specific as well. So uh, so um, uh, we try to make a, a design that kids are excited about. And actually, for um, for this year's kids helmet, that's gonna arrive at the the shops uh, this fall. I have two kids at home, hmm. and they were not happy at all with the with my proposals. Hmm. So they uh, they decided to to design the the graphics themselves. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta <laughs> gotta work on your graphic design, huh? Yeah. So huh. Uh, so now it's it's. Uh, uh, designed uh, by kids for kids. Huh? Are there like dinosaurs and unicorns all over them, or? Uh, it's because uh... if there are, I mean, I might try to squeeze into one. You know, that would be. Well, the 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 one that's designed for boys, it has a monster on it. All right. And the one for for girls, it has a um. It has a girl, uh, which um. Which ha- which thinks about pineapples? <laughs> <laughs> it's well done, yeah. yeah. Huh? See, you never would have thought of that. Uh, no. Yeah. Huh. Um, that's interesting. All right. Uh, similar question, but flipped. Let's say there's that customer out there, and they're like, you know what? Uh, I'm not trying to end up with head injuries. I am willing to drop money on uh i'm willing to drop a lot of money on a helmet so now what this customer is shopping for is looking at the various options top of the line options among a handful of manufacturers um at that point are we kind of talking about the difference between coke and pepsi you know if if someone's willing to spend whatever 300 400 500 dollars for a helmet um, I mean, granted, there's some companies not even, you know, making helmets at that price point, but if, if someone's willing to spend kind of top dollar among the, the top line offerings from these different companies, give me your pitch for why they might consider sweets among the other options out there. What's the best argument? Well, the, the best helmet... Uh, that we have in our line is also the most expensive, which is our ski race helmet, the Dichesa, uh Rooster Dichesa RS, mm-hmm. and um, and basically that's uh, that's currently the best we can do. It mm-hmm. has the the best combination of uh, of uh, performance, volume, and weight. It is it has um, it has that handmade carbon fiber shell with with the the different properties throughout um and uh, it has a four piece uh multi density eps liner to comp- to basically tune the properties to the geometry of your head and it's as well the most 
comfortable helmet that we're we're uh, that we're making uh, since racers wear their helmets um, most of the year, yeah. and that's where we also put a lot of effort into uh, safety features. If you have a crash, there's a, there's a helmet eject system, so you can remove the helmet even though it has snug fit. You can you can uh, uh, there's a system where you can eject the the pads that lock the helmet onto your head, so you can easily remove the helmet without causing extra strain on your neck. And also, we worked with um, with hearing because when you're it's, it's represent the big challenge to be able to hear well in combination with high speed without getting some uh, uh, distortion from from the uh, the the vents. The year events. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a very, it's very much a no compromise race helmet. This might be my last question, and it's related. But um, we talked about Sweets price point helmets. Uh, actually, we didn't really talk about Sweets price point helmets. You ended up talking about kids helmets and how and your approach to that. Um, so I'm going to actually make you talk about your price point helmets. Again, if I'm looking at um, the less expensive offerings from say three to five different companies, why why ought I to think hard about what Sweet's doing? Well, uh, I think I think what what's uh, what's unique to our approach to helmet design is that we put a lot of uh, time and effort into um, into developing the actual shell, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not only the geometry of the shell, but but um, basically developing what how the shell can be an important part of the of the protection performance. Uh, so so what we do is that we make every every single part of the helmet has a purpose. It's not really a it's not a styling exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a combination of the of the smooth geometry that um, uh, that initially will will reduce some of the rotational forces, but it's also how we optimize the um, um, the shell with different rigidity and elasticity uh, related to the geometry of of the human head, uh, which then makes a helmet which has high performance, low volume, and and relative low weight. Which makes it very comfortable and um, and uh, and and easy easy to use. Back to kind of what started the whole thing that you you won't be annoyed by what you're wearing, so you can focus fully on on skiing or mountain biking or whitewater kayaking. Mm-hmm. Well, Stola, it has been really good to talk, and um, I I think this has I hope this conversation has shed a lot of light on some of the surrounding issues um, that, you know, throwing any bucket on your head. Um, we probably should be thinking about things in a little more sophisticated ways than just, well, I slapped something up there. Um, so I really appreciate your time and, and, uh, and uh, your, uh, your insight into some of these things. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with, um, with you too. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Stola for the conversation. To our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, who, according to his brother-in-law, is a really fast runner, but kind of looks like a T-Rex when he runs. And thanks to Nest Bedding for sponsoring this episode. 
be sure to go to nestbedding.com to start getting a better night's sleep. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there. Subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes, and we'll catch you next week on the Blister Podcast.